Hello and welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. I'm Giles Brandreth. I'm speaking to you from London, England, and my colleague and Christmas week companion is my friend, the great lexicographer Susie Dent. Where are you this Christmas, Susie? I'm in Oxford and um, I'm talking to you in front of my giant fish painting, which has seen a lot of podcasts and a lot of action over the last couple of years, action in terms of me working at my desk. And uh, yeah, I'm still here. You're still there. I hope in some ways we're having a better Christmas week than I am. Last night, the I don't know what went wrong. The heating seemed to work, but the the hot water went off. Oh no! And I had that startling experience of clambering into the shower mm. and ice cold water, and I kept fiddling with, and there was still ice cold water. And I know a little bit of the shock of it's supposed to be good for you. Yes, do you remember what it's called? What is it called? The word for the shock of cold water. It's from Scots, and it's a kaglaf. Do you remember? A kaglaf. Yes, a kaglaf. I don't remember. A uh, kaglaf. Yes. I was hit by a kaglaf. Yeah. I then emerged and said to my wife, oh, the hot water's off. She said, I left you a note on the kitchen table when you came in. It said, the hot water is off, don't take a shower. Um, anyway, you can imagine what it's been like. Christmas week, no hot water. But fortunately, a saintly guy has been in. Brilliant. All credit to Jason and to John for getting the hot water back on. You Excellent. never have any plumbing problems, do you, Susie? Well, as you know, because you're being yeah. very mischievous, I am waiting for the drainage people, uh, possibly the most famous drainage company in uh, in Britain, um, who I don't have to mention. But yeah, I'm waiting for them to come because we have blocked drains, which is the first time I've ever had blocked drains in my life, and I do not recommend them. Look, if they solve the problem for you, let's hear it for Dino Rod. <laughs> if they solve the problems. If they don't turn up, uh, we won't mention it. Uh, no. Okay, that's all right. All right. I have had, uh, I love Christmas because I am what I wear. And every day through the Christmas season, I wear a different colourful jumper because I think if I get up, it makes me feel more cheery. So I'm wearing a fun Christmas jumper. And I work a bit over Christmas. I like working at Christmas. But what I do is hardly counts as work. And it made me think this week of the people who are doing real work. The fire brigades, yeah. the police officers, the nurses, the doctors, the paramedics, all those people who are actually keepers. working. Yeah. Shopkeepers working right over Christmas. It's amazing. People mm. in, in taxis. I mean, people do work at Christmas. But actually, people we forget, I think, who work at Christmas are people who work on farms. Yes, you're right. You and I are both city dwellers, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And I don't know that my grandchildren realise that the food they eat comes from down on the farm. Yeah. No, it's an important lesson at school, isn't it? Where a carrot comes from, etc. There are always quite startling surveys that show that a lot of kids truly think that spaghetti might grow on trees, if you remember that panorama, April Fool's. But unsurprisingly, because food is now, the food chain is now so long and uh, what we end up with is, is so far away from where it began. So yes, today is our tribute to the farmers up and down the world, well, up and down the land, but also across the world because we have lots of purple listeners abroad. We are very excited. If you're just new to this podcast, there are about 140 of them you can go back to. Uh, essentially, every week we meet together, Susie and I, and we talk about words and language. And with Susie's help, we unravel the, the heritage, the history, the meaning of words. I'm going to start today, if we may, with the word farm, F-A-R-M, ah. a four-letter word that's essential. Down on the farm, what's the origin of farm? Well, 
it's interesting, actually, because it was all about money originally. So farm, first of all, came to us from French, as uh, so many English words do, and the old French ferme, F-E-R-M-E. And that in turn comes from a Latin word, firma, F-I-R-M-A, which meant a fixed payment. And oh. it gave us, you know, we, we talk about companies as firms. That is why, because the noun firm originally meant a fixed annual amount that was payable as rent. And very often farmland is subcontracted from another person. So a farm came to mean a lease. And around the early 16th century, it was a land leased for farming. So the idea of growing crops or keeping livestock that we associate with farming today actually only dates back to the 19th century. Gosh. Farming at its essence, of course, is all about agriculture. Yeah. And that word must have a much older origin, agri and culture. Agri meaning? Agar in Latin meaning a field or oh. land. It's as simple as that. But yes, that would go back to the Roman times. But do you know, I was musing that actually so much of our financial vocabulary is about farming, really, which shows the importance of agriculture in days gone by. Because if you take the idea of a fee, you will go back to the medieval feudal system in which the nobles held land and the peasants were obliged to work the lord's land and give him a share of the produce. And a fee was the sort of benefit or reward, if you like, for that produce. So that was the earliest meaning of fee. And if you take a fellow, that's another interesting word, that actually goes back to the Latin for cattle, because cattle were thought to be so important that actually they became a synonym for money or even for property. And so a fellow was a partner who laid down money in a joint enterprise or indeed invested jointly in cows. Mm, how intriguing. Mm. Basically, it's all about the money. We plough the fields and scatter the good seed on the land. Plough, P-L-O-U-G-H, that's fundamental to agriculture. It uh, is. Ploughing in the money to grow the profits. What's the origin of plough? It is of Germanic origin. It's a Germanic word. And in German today, you'll have Flug, P-F-L-U-G, which eventually became our plough. And actually, plough in English was spelt P-L-L-O-W, which is still the US spelling. Um, but that oh. is how we spelled it for a very long time until about the 18th century. And then you have the ploughman, of course. Why did we change? Because P-L-O-W is much simpler than P-L-O-U-G-H. Mm. I think, again, it was part of this drive to create a sort of independent language. And do you remember also that sound and spelling divorced such a long time ago? So presumably we were following the pattern of things like the bough of a tree, um, etc. But, you know, spelling is notoriously idiosyncratic and eccentric when it comes to English. And so I can't give you a firm answer to that because there are so many anomalies. And, you know, famously that O-U-G-H spelling is pronounced in so many different ways. I was going to go on to the ploughman's lunch yes. because I remember this vividly because when I worked at Oxford University Press, they put out a call to action for people in, well, across the world, really, to find the earliest evidence they could of the ploughman's lunch because they could only find evidence dating back to 1960. Whereas anecdotally, people say they were eating ploughman's lunches and referring to them as such for decades before. And so there was a big, big rush on to see if people could find 
well, not a rush, I suppose, but a big initiative to see if people could find earlier evidence. In 1837, in a biography of the life of Sir Walter Scott, there is a sort of pre-echo, if you like, of the Ploughman's Lunch. And it goes, the surprised poet swung forth to join them with an extemporised sandwich that looked like a ploughman's luncheon in his hand. So that suggests that actually Ploughman's Lunch or Ploughboy's Lunch is also recorded, was actually around as bread and cheese and pickled onions to go with your pint for quite a long time before the OED's first record. That is completely fascinating. The, I, mm. Do you like a ploughman's lunch? I love I a love ploughman's a lunch. lunch. I love pickled onions. I love them. I love onions of all kinds. The ploughman, who uh, we plough the seeds and scatter, uh, we are sowing seeds, aren't we? So where does sow come from? S-O-W. Yes. Again, a Germanic word, but you'll find lots of siblings in Old Norse, the language of the Vikings and Old Saxon, etc. But it simply goes back to an ancient word. Well, the Old English word, first of all, sawan, meaning to scatter seed upon the ground or to plant it. But the ancient root of it also gave us semen, because we talk about a man's seed, season and seed itself. So it's, it's quite an important family. Oh, semen, mm. as in semen, is from being a man's seed. The men in semen means man. As in male. Yes, it's the whole the whole idea. And in fact, season is quite interesting as well. The sort of the idea that a season determines what happens on the land. Again, showing the really the real importance of uh, farming and agriculture. That's why we have the Harvest Festival to thank God, those that believe in God, for yeah. bringing in the harvest. Yeah. Now, I mean, fundamental to the uh, the year in the country in the old days. Mm. Harvest. I love the word harvest. There's something just, I think it might be because of harvest festivals at school. I love autumn, so it's got real resonance for me. Well, the meaning of harvest in Old English was autumn. Oh. And since early autumn was the season for cutting, gathering in the crops, it passed into a sort of different meaning, if you like, for the process of gathering in crops and the season's yield. So it goes back to the German Herbst, which still means autumn over there. But ultimately, we think it might go back to another ancient word that gave us the Latin carpere, to pluck, which also gave us carpet, because you're plucking crops from the ground, and a Greek word meaning fruit. So again, a really illustrious family. But if you remember, we had harvest for autumn, then we had the fall of the leaf, or fall for short, and then we decided to go with the French word lathon and have autumn. But we've had various names for autumn, including the North American fall. So harvest also means, it now means gathering in the harvest, but it used to mean autumn itself. Autumn itself, yes. This is the harvest season, when you do yeah. the harvesting. And crop, there was a word that sounded very like crop in what you were using just then. Crop. C-R-O-P. The crop is what you gather in at harvest it time. It is, yes. What, what's the origin of that? Well, it goes back to an Anglo-Saxon word meaning the head or the top of a plant, really. It was the head. And it's got so many different senses, crop, that I can't begin to go onto all of them. But obviously, when you are, you know, gathering your crops, your cereals, etc., you're cutting off the top of a plant. And then when you have a riding crop, it was the upper part of a whip or a handle of a whip originally. And then if you have cropped hair, it's a kind of thick, short head of hair on top. So lots and lots of different meanings for crop. But the idea, again, is as I said, kind of cutting the head off your plants when it comes to farming and agriculture. 
You mentioned harvest, and of course that gives us the harvester, the combine harvester, <laughs> and that's, I suppose, relatively new. The reason it's called a combine harvester is that it combines three individual operations that happen during harvest, the reaping and the threshing and the winnowing as well. So that's why it, it kind of combines all of those different uh, processes. Well, those are three good words. Can you unpack those three? To winnow is lovely, actually. It means to kind of pare down, and it comes from a, a, an old English word meaning to wind. It's to blow a mm. current of air through grain in order to remove the chaff. And then more generally, simply to remove the chaff from grain. And yes, it goes back to an old English word meaning to wind. Um, and it goes back to an ancient root that also gave us vent and ventilate and wind. One of the three words for the combination that's happening. What were the other two? Reap as well, which is to cut or gather a harvest. Apparently we don't know its origin um, and it's got no matching words in any other languages. So it's something of a mystery. Oh, I love these words that we don't know the origin of. It's marvellous. It means that there's going to be work for us for years to come. What was the third one? Threshing. So threshing and thrashing are both sides of the same English coin, if you like. And thrash was used for treading out corn by men or by oxen. And threshing was restricted to producing uh, grain. And then thrash went on to mean more kind of generally knocking or beating or striking something. And that thresh in terms of tramping with the feet, you will find in threshold as well, because the, the thresh goes back to the idea of treading. Yes, and I think when you went over the threshold hmm. into a house, it was because they had some sort of like matting just inside the door that you could sort of wipe your feet on. And that was why the threshold was there. Yes, no one quite knows where the hold bit comes from. That is a mystery for etymologists, but definitely the threshing is all about treading. So you were treading across the boundary between one place and the next. You've mentioned the tractor before, but tell me in a nutshell about the origin of the word tractor. OK, so tractor goes back to the Latin trahere, so T-R-A-H-E-R-E, -E, and its past tense was tractus, and it was all about pulling something along. And tractus and also trahere gave us train, uh, trace, extract, contract, trainers, contract. I mean, so many different words with the idea of pulling or drawing something out. But um, yes, Good. tractor is part of that very important family. Speaking of pulling or drawing something out, irrigate, because you can't grow anything if there isn't water as well as ground. Exactly. It's very simple um, Latin origin that it goes back to in meaning into and rigare meaning to moisten or wet. Excellent. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. This is Something Rhymes with Purple. We're celebrating Christmas week. We're in festive form. I'm wearing one of my Christmas jumpers. Tell me, why is what I'm wearing called a jumper in this mm. country and yet a sweater in America? 
Yes, again, another example of the great distinction between the two languages. Well, jumper, when it first appeared in English, which was the mid-19th century, meant a kind of shapeless jacket. So the sort of smock almost that you will find worn by artists, you know, stereotypically. Mm. And the sort of dress sense then developed from that. So a jumper for a long time, and in fact still in the US, means a kind of pinafore dress. But over here, it took a slightly different route and it moved on to what we would now call a sweater. And actually, it goes back to a noun meaning jump, which has nothing to do with leaping in the air, but it's a form of the French jupe, which actually now means a skirt, very confusingly in French. But um, it used to mean a short coat, um, a jupe. So that's where you get a jumper. So the idea originally was of something you would wear on top. Um, And we have kept that sense in British English and, um, you know, in America, as you say, in American English, it is a sweater. And that looks back to the idea that in the late 19th century, again, it was intended purely to make its wearer sweat. So athletes in training wore sweaters. And there's a great example from a 19th century text that says, As for pilling, the little ruffian actually weighs over eight stone, but we're going to make him run a mile every day with four sweaters and three pairs of flannel trousers. Really dangerous, I would think, but they were intended originally to provide such warmth that they would make their wearer sweat. I think you're brilliant, Susie Dent. You know everything instantly. You're fantastic. Uh, no, if you're, but thank you. Well, we're talking about farming today because we're thinking about the people down on the farm who provide all the wonderful food that we enjoy over Christmas, but who are working every day because mm. farming goes on all the time. And I remember not long ago you told us about the bizarre agricultural origin of mm. other words like broadcast which is what we're doing now on our podcast. And that is to do with casting seeds broadly. I mean, give me the link of that. And then aftermath was another one that was related to agriculture. Explain why. Exactly. So broadcast was simply widely disseminating your seeds. You were casting them broadly. And the idea was then extended to the idea of modern media and modern broadcasting because you are widely disseminating information and then, of course, you know, transmission, I suppose. But yes, it was originally scattering seeds by hand and then not sure actually when it began to take on the modern I mean I think you still might talk about broadcasting in agriculture and I know you certainly talk about aftermath aftermath originally meant after mowing so when a field had been mown so yeah 1921 to disseminate a message news or any audible or visible matter so that was 1921 that's 1921 is the anniversary of the BBC, the foundation of the BBC go. came around yeah. in 1922. So obviously that's when the first idea of broadcasting as we know it. Yeah. And aftermath is post, it's after math. The math, yes. So it was the second crop, if you like. It was the new growth of grass after the first had been mown or harvested. That was the aftermath. And then this is all a long time ago, 17th century, it began to mean a state of affairs following a significant event. So, um, yeah, again, a sort of second consequence, if you like. Are there other words that we use every day that have an agricultural farming origin that we no longer realise? 
Yes, lots. And they're all quite strange, really. We have delirious, which actually goes back to a word that literally meant deviate from the furrow. So you are not sticking to your groove, but you're going beyond it. And that's from oh. day, Latin from away, and lira, um, a ridge between furrows. So if you are delirious, you are being sort of deranged, I suppose, or just sort of going outside yourself a little bit, you know, to have a sort of almost out-of-body experience. But that's extraordinary. It is, delirium. isn't it? So delirium comes from literally the furrowed earth yeah. and the ridge and, and going swerving away from the furrowed earth, you're in a state of delirium. Yeah, exactly. That's brilliant. Very strange. And then you've also got a hearse, believe it or not, because a hearse, obviously, always part of a funeral these days, but its origin is actually very agricultural because it goes back to the Latin herpex, H-R. I-R-P-E-X, which came into French as Erce, H-E-R-C-E. And an herpex was a kind of large rake, which I will explain. So herpex itself probably goes back to an extinct language of southern Italy, so Oscan, where herpes meant a wolf. And so people were making a comparison between the teeth of a wolf and the teeth of a rake. So that's why it was called, this implement, this agricultural implement was called a, a little wolf. And the earliest uses of hearse in medieval English for a triangular frame that had teeth, it was shaped like an ancient harrow, and on those teeth would be placed candles at church services and a canopy would be placed over the coffin of, of a distinguished person while it was in church. But those teeth of that giant rake actually held the candles and only later did it come to mean the vehicle for conveying the coffin itself. What an extraordinary journey to get I to the know. word hearse, to start with a kind of farming rake. Yeah. Amazing. It is. Can you give me another one? One more? Yes. Another big family, really, is, well, we've got gregarious, you've got egregious, you've got congregate. All of these goes back to the Latin grex, G-R-E-X, which meant a herd or a flock. So if you are gregarious, you are... Um, sort of fond of company, if you like, you're fond of your flock or your herd. Whereas if you go back to egregious, that originally meant distinguished. So, you know, oh. sort of prominent in your field. And obviously it's taken a turn for the worse because if something is egregious, it is pernicious and, and very negative. But it actually goes back to X standing away from and then Grex standing out from the herd, which explains why it was originally complimentary because you stood out. But then pessimists that we are as always it began to mean something negative egregious meaning you are sticking out for all the wrong reasons and then if you congregate obviously you're collecting into your herd or your flock and if you're segregated you are set apart from your herd so all of those go back to um to farming in the early days and of course farming in the early days was mainstream it was what people did because it was about survival which is why there are so many idioms i imagine using the farm mm. from sowing your wild oats, uh, <laughs> to travelling a hard road to hoe. These phrases date back, I imagine, a long time. Though perhaps sowing your wild oats not so long, I don't know. I mean, we know what it means, don't we? Yes. So either literally it means sort of spreading your seed, I suppose, or sleeping around. Uh, but actually, yeah. it originally in the 16th century, it was just the sort of youthful excesses or follies. And it was in reference to the stupidity of sowing wild oats instead of good grain. That's the idea of the wild uh, oats, as they're ones that actually won't guarantee a good harvest. So 16th century first references to sowing your wild oats. It's actually very old. Very good. And what was the other phrase I mentioned? Oh, yes, a hard road to travel. I mean, a, a tough road to hoe. Yeah. 
What's the origin of that? I think that's North American, isn't it? Um, because I'm not that familiar with that one. But I think it simply goes back to the t- tough job that is hoeing if you've not got very machinery. So presumably, much machinery presumably goes back to the early days of farming when it's hard work, it's hot work when you were hoeing the fields instead of using all the modern technology that we now have available. Yeah, it's pretty obvious, actually. It's rather like mm. separating the wheat from the chaff, meaning yes. sorting things out. But the, the wheat is the good stuff, the chaff is the, the bad stuff. Is that an yeah. old phrase? Yeah, that is quite old. And it's, yes, it's separating the wanted from the unwanted, isn't it? And again, if we go back to the idea of winnowing and winnowing grain, farmers want to remove all the chaff from the wheat because in order to eat the wheat, you have to get rid of the chaff. And do you remember I was also talking about crap recently and how crap actually originally meant all the discarded bits of wheat that you didn't want. So that comes into play as well. She bought the farm. I know the phrase. Not quite sure what it means. I feel that might be an American one too. Bought the farm. That's an Americanism. Yes. So if you buy the farm, you die, essentially. So it's a euphemism oh, for... Oh, it's a euphemism death. for dying. Mm. I didn't realise yes. that. Yes. It's very similar to how Gone for a Burton originated. Um, if you remember, it's probably a reference to Burton's ale, so beer or ale from Burton on Trent, that became a euphemism for drink. So the idea is that if a pilot unfortunately crashed into the ocean, then you would go into the drink and say you were gone for a Burton. So it's quite similar to that. But buying the farm, lots of suggestions accounting for exactly what the farm is in this. But one idea is that if a serviceman or woman was killed in action, their family would receive a payout from the insurance. And this would be sufficient to pay off the family mortgage and possibly buy the farm themselves. So if you bought the farm, your death would then guarantee that your family at least had your property. That's one of the guesses, but there are lots more that you will find if you go searching. Well, that's the world of farming from life to death from Susie Dent, who is completely brilliant. If you've got more queries about agriculture and words to do with farming that we haven't touched on today and would like us to explore, you just need to drop us a line. It's simply purple at somethingelse.com. Something is spelt without a G, purple at somethingelse.com. People do write in every week from around the world, and we love to hear from the purple people. We love to meet them too. We've done some recently some live podcasts that have been very lively and great fun around the UK. We're doing more uh, in the new year at the Cadogan Hall in London and in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and others may be announced, so uh, look out for those. Who has been writing to us this week, Susie? Well, I have been ticked off, very kindly ticked off, by David Tomlinson, who is a regular listener, and I'm very glad that he wrote to correct me on one particular point because we learn as much from the purple people as hopefully they learn from us. And he says, Dear Susie and Giles, having just listened to your cybernetic episode, I need to correct Susie on one point. The end of the episode, you were discussing the origins of Grand Slam, and Susie said that the term was used to describe a home run in baseball. This is not entirely correct. A Grand Slam is when a batter hits a home run run with players on all the bases, thus scoring four runs. Uh, So thank you for that, David. He is an English teacher in a university in central China, and he tries to pass on some of the knowledge that he gets from something rhymes with purple to his students. So that's lovely. Thank you for that, David. And please do keep writing in. And if you feel like we haven't quite given the whole story or you have your own theory or your own facts, we love to hear from you, good or bad. So please do email us. This reminds us that English is now a world language. 
Mm. I mean, there we've got David uh, actually coming from Lincolnshire, but teaching at a university in central China, where Chinese people speaking English will be adding their extra spin to this old language. Wonderful. Absolutely. And we have another fantastic name here, actually, in terms of uh, being international, Andrea Fermark. Now, ah. I'm not completely sure where... Oh, she's in Pretoria in South Africa. Um, and Andrea says that friend and, and she were thinking about trying cyanotype. We understand that the photographic craft is named after the blue colour of the finished prints. However, we notice that one of the chemicals used in the process is potassium ferricyanide. We then wondered if the word cyanide has any relation to the colour, and our very first thought was to ask you. She says really sweetly, please never stop broadcasting. I think speaking of broadcasting. So thank you so much for that, Andrea. We really appreciate that letter. And Giles, this was a real discovery for me. This is why I love doing this pod, because my first thought was cyanide and cyan? No way. And you know what? I was completely wrong. Gosh. Cyan is C-Y-A-N. I know yeah. the word, meaning it's a colour, isn't it? Yeah, it's a greenish blue colour. Yes. What's the connection? So the greenish-blue colour, cyan, goes back to the Greek of kuanios, terrible pronunciation, meaning dark blue. Okay, so that's that. Cyanide is a colourless, highly poisonous substance that is made by oxidising hydrogen cyanide. And that goes back to the same word, the Greek kuanos, meaning dark blue mineral. So named because it is a constituent of the colour Prussian blue. So they are absolutely linked. And I had no idea that they even were remote relations, but now I know better. So thank you so much for that, Andrea. Andrea Wehrmark there, writing from South Africa. Writing from York in England uh, is Jack Hughes, who says, Dear Susie and Giles, I have a wordy query about a vegetable, technically a fruit, that I hate, he says, the green <laughs> pepper. Bitter and unflinching, a green pepper to me is simply an unripe one. Having said all this, I came across an interesting point of curiosity the other day when flicking through some of my many recipe books. It would seem that in some parts of America, particularly the Midwest, green peppers are known as mangoes. What on earth is going on there? If you could shed any light on the subject, it would be greatly appreciated so I can go back to loathing this vegetable monstrosity. Okay, what do you think? What's the answer to all that? <laughs> okay, so if you look up mango in the Oxford English Dictionary, you will find the very first sentence, the one that most of us know, and that is the fruit of the mango tree. Um, so the sweet orange-fleshed droop, it says, which is much eaten as dessert, especially in the tropics. But of course, thanks to aviation, now very much over here too, and delicious. Um, it's also used for the tree that produces the fruit and also the, you know, various other trees that produce a similar fruit. Then you've got pickles, you've got lots and lots of different trees and different plants named a mango and indeed different fruits. So there's another one, which is a musk melon. Now, I'd never heard of a musk melon. But musk melon is also known as a mango melon. Have you heard of that? Nope, never. No, I hadn't either. But that is the edible fruit of the melon. Honestly, there's a very specific botanical description here. But safe to say that mango has been applied to lots of different fruits and lots of different plants, including from 1948, recorded in the Dictionary of American Regional English, a green bell pepper. 
Now, all I can say is it's probably down to appearance and it was a handy word to have around at the time. I can't really explain why it became a multi-purpose word, given that it has real specificity for us still, but it's definitely recorded. It's a synonym for green pepper in many parts of the USA. Well done. Thank you, Jack, for that inquiry. Jack, of course, is a multi-purpose name too. There's a Jack as the person. There's Jack in also. We could we could do a whole show about Jack, but we won't. <laughs> let's not go. Let's not go there today because we we've got to finish in a moment because we're all waiting to see if the drainage man or woman <laughs> or person turns up to give Susie a reasonable Christmas. But before yes, that, please. your trio. Susie, three interesting words that you'd like to bring to our attention that we may not yet be familiar with. Okay, three words from the past that have become lost over time and which I think still have a little bit of use for um, for today. The first one is a guttling. We've got Christmas coming up. So G-U-T-L-I-N-G is simply a greedy eater or a glutton, a guttling. Oh, Somebody who thinks only mm. of their stomach. The next one is somebody who is just a bit indifferent to everything, doesn't really believe in anything particularly. Oh. This comes from the 18th century, an anything Aryan. <laughs> oh, I love that. What a great word. An yeah. anything Aryan. Oh, that's yes. wonderful. Somebody uh, who's a bit wishy-washy, doesn't really believe in anything, whatever goes. I'm a bit exactly. like that. I always agree with the last person I met. Um, <laughs> and anything Aryan. Oh, I'm anything going to put Aryan. that word into my language. And how long has that been around? Since the 18th century. Oh, it's a brilliant word. Excellent. And the third one? The other one is, instead of saying to someone like, ugh, old news, you can say, ugh, coal warts. And coal oh, warts... Coal warts, C-O-A-L warts. C-O-L. And maybe it's coal warts, actually, because when we talk about rag wort it's w-o-r-t so maybe coal worts and it refers to cabbage-like plants so something which you know i suppose is not particularly exciting but um yes specifically in english it's meant old news in other words you don't need to tell me that i knew that already cold words this is why diction is so important because i thought initially you said cold warts and i think oh. warts you know when they've gone cold well Ooh. you know what are you fussing about your warts they're all cold now Ooh. but actually it's coal warts C-O-L-E. As in coleslaw, maybe. Coleslaw. Exactly. It's exactly. the same thing. Coal warts. So it's it's tired old cabbage. No, it's no news. It's coal warts around here. Exactly. Oh, that's wonderful. I think those three could be my favourite three words of the year. Your okay. trio. I think Excellent. they're fantastic, actually. Oh, I'm glad. I've got a poem for you. Good. And I thought it, I should make it a short poem because Christmas is coming. And it's one of my favourite Christmas poems. It's actually called Another Christmas Poem. And it's by one of my... Favourite contemporary poets, Wendy Cope. Oh, she's brilliant. Bloody Christmas here again. Let us raise a loving cup. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, and make them do the washing up. That's brilliant. I love Wendy Isn't Cope. It? She's brilliantly on love as well, doesn't she? She's absolutely fantastic. Oh, she's brilliant on love, on life, on Christmas, on men, on everything. <laughs> We're going to let you go, Susie Dent, but can we say, if you're listening to this before Christmas, and you may be listening to it in the future, because we like people to go back, trawl back, but if you are listening to this over Christmas, we hope wherever you are, whoever you're with, particularly if you happen to be on your own, uh, yep. we are there with you because we love you people, the purple people. We're thinking particularly this week of all the people who are working over Christmas, all the people on the farm and in the hospitals and on the roads and just everybody who is keeping the world going. Have a very Merry Christmas. 
and a happy new year. And to you too, Susie. Thank you, Giles. And I wish that to all our fantastic listeners as well. And here's to many, many more episodes with you in the new year. So thank you for following us. And do please recommend us to friends if you have enjoyed us or do get in touch because that's the best yet. It's purple at something else.com. If people want to give us a Christmas present, you can follow <laughs> us, at, you know, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music. And recommending us to friends is absolutely vital. Vital. Yes, that's our present. We don't want anything else. <laughs> something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and, oh, well, we have to say something kind and Christmassy now. We do. When it comes to Gully, I'm not an anything Aryan. I'm no. an enthusiast. He's as close as we're going to get to Santa Claus. Uh, I'm going to tweet a photograph of him and you'll see, when you see his picture, I'll put it on Instagram as well, you'll think, oh my goodness, that's what Gully looks like. He does look like a very young Santa. So, Merry Christmas, Gully. Merry Christmas, Gully. Happy Christmas, everyone.